There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Twenty-three years ago, Today's guest put a dog puppet on his hand and started making poop jokes in a thick Russian accent. It's never stopped being funny. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today I'm talking to the legendary comedian behind Triumph the Insult comic dog, Robert Smigel. Robert first brought Triumph to life on Late Night with Conan O'Brien in the late 90s. Since then, he's confronted everyone from the Westminster Dog Show and Star Wars nerds to Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, and he always brings the perfect blend of stupid humor and biting satire. This month, he produced a new Triumph benefit special for Funny or Die called Quarantine Squares, in which he simultaneously quizzes and mocks celebrities like Jason Alexander, Susie Essman, and Anthony Scaramucci. It's hilarious. I could not have been more excited to talk to Robert, not only about Triumph, but also about his many years at SNL, where he wrote and starred in sketches like Da Bears and created the ambiguously gay duo, a concept he readily admits would not work in 2020. Okay, this is me and Robert Smigel. I want to talk about the the quarantine squares game show that you that you just put Thank out because it was really great, so fun. Oh, um, did you like it? Yeah, it was really really funny and just Thanks. so surreal to see all of those people in little squares. Uh, it was a pretty perfect use of uh, of the technology that we're all using now. Absolutely, it was. A, I've been wanting to do a Triumph hosted quiz show for yeah. many years. It's one of many Triumph ideas I just haven't been able to sell. And I had this idea of doing these Jeopardy type questions where mm-hmm. the punchline is in the form of a question. And it just felt like a really fresh way to do Triumph's sort of smart ass humor. I just could not get it done. But I had this idea in the back of my head and I thought it would make a great podcast. But it would, but I wanted to do it with a, an audience. I wanted to, you know, go to the Bell House in Brooklyn or a place like that. You know, I tried to sell it to big companies. Which turned out to be just another waste of energy. <laughs> so then I just mounted it yeah. myself for the New York Comedy Festival at a place called the Murmur Ballroom. And then the pandemic happened, and I just tabled it. And yeah. live shows and, not really not really working so much yeah. right now. I really wanted to go to that that live show in New York. I wanted to go, and I didn't make it, but I did listen to it when you put it out as a podcast, and it was great. And I really enjoyed. Um, Thank uh, you, Anthony yeah. Scaramucci. You got on Anthony, there, which he was, was which he was, was very a score. game. It, I guess I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. The guy who had nothing to lose. <laughs> was willing to say anything, make yeah. guesses. The other two people were a little buttoned down in that yeah, one. Yeah, Pete Davidson is not a, doesn't like to talk a lot about himself, pro- 
probably. Well, he's doing his own stand-up, understandable, you know, he's yeah, in he's control. Very confessional, yeah. He's an incredibly nice guy, but yeah, it was uh it wasn't best use for him or Lawrence and Lawrence <laughs> O'Donnell. Lawrence O'Donnell was a miracle that I got anyone from MSNBC to get within ten feet of Triumph. Yeah. So he was there, but he was not willing to uh knock it out of the park as far as uh going for these punchlines. You're supposed to guess punchlines, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when yeah. you're playing the game and he was he was afraid to like some of the categories had filthy names to them yeah he didn't want to even say it out loud but scaramucci will do pretty much anything and you have him on the yes. quarantine squares as well yes this was proof positive scaramucci would indeed do anything say anything <laughs> and of course he's the most willing to come back and do it again and the guy who dms me the most on twitter about oh really <laughs> yeah 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 what does he and, talk uh, to you about you know, hey anytime man when are we gonna do another one and uh <laughs> way to go you're a genius (laughs) (laughs) hilarious same stuff he would say to donald trump i'm sure (laughs) you're the man yeah you're the man what i'm out okay all right fuck you (laughs) (laughs) but then on this one he bailed early what happened he had to bail early i was like any mooch is better than no mooch so (laughs) i i just went for it fun just to see him there anyway well, the fun was like the second he left, everybody started trashing him behind his back. Yeah. Which was very enjoyable. <laughs> Susie Essman, Jason Alexander, yeah. everybody's Tom, laughing. Tom Arnold you had there. That was good. It was the opposite of the first podcast where everybody was like kind of tense because there was an mm-hmm. audience. And here, yeah. everybody, there was no audience. And I thought, oh, am I going to have to like play this back for a yeah. Zoom audience later? Oh, no. I, I realized immediately that would be intrusive. Mm -hmm. Uh, because this just felt like a party, you know, Mm -hmm. as it was. And welcome to our special Quarantine Squares edition of Let's Make a Poop. How are you, celebrities? Loving life. I love your backgrounds. Love them. Very few pretentious bookshelves. Only Scaramucci, who we know is an avid reader. (laughs) Everybody was like a great sport. So for me, it was like a pleasure to be doing it in such a relaxed environment. As opposed to what you're usually dealing with. It's the most stressful thing I do in my career. And unfortunately, the most successful, the most (laughs) beloved thing I do. But it's not really my nature. It's my nature to push boundaries and bite the hand that feeds me, quote unquote. But for me, physically, to be confrontational, it's that is not me at all. Even when I do triumph, I almost always try to ask the person in advance, is it okay if you talk to my puppet here? But you couldn't you always know? do that, with some, especially with some of the political people. It's not no. so easy to do. You just kind of no, have to go No, you have no it. choice. You have no choice when you're in the middle of like, oh my God, it's so stressful to go to these debates. Yeah. And then you're in the, the spin room afterward. Yeah. And everybody's I've been there too. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, and everybody's taking it really seriously. And also when I did these Hulu specials in 19, in 2016, and I would go to a town hall and John Kasich would be speaking. And it would be so easy for me to yell something mm-hmm. and get a big laugh. But I just couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> really? I just felt like I'm not going to be that guy who makes it that much about him and his character. I just, I want to be respectful of the process Mm -hmm. To that degree, I don't want to, a lot of people work hard at this and contrary to what goes out, there are a lot of people who are sincerely believe they're doing it for the right reasons. There are plenty of opportunists, plenty of scumbags out there too, but there are people who support candidates and work on campaigns for other reasons, for purer reasons. And I just don't feel right about 
being that level of disruptive. Do you have a kind of favorite confrontation with a political person that you've done over the last several years? I mean, for me, it's Ted yes. Cruz, I think. Yeah, Ted Cruz a, was a gift. I that, never thought in a million years that Ted Cruz would come up to me and be willing mm -hmm. to speak. Like we went to Texas with no expectation of talking to either candidate. I yeah. thought I was just going to make fun of the supporters and make Ted Cruz jokes to the supporters. Mm -hmm. And that would be the end of it. But we go to a Ted Cruz rally and... Ted Cruz is meeting and greeting people on the stage afterward. And one of my writers was with me, a guy named David Feldman, a very funny guy, has his own podcast on Pacifica. And he just had the balls to get on stage and he's in his 50s and he's yelling over, Ted, Ted, Harvard Law School. Remember me? He's just faking it. He's just yeah. pretending he went to Harvard Law School. And then Ted doesn't really quite get his attention. And he's like, Triumph, the insult comic dog. And at one point, Ted notices him. You know, he wasn't listening to the Harvard Law School, but when he mm -hmm. heard Triumph, he actually kind of lit up. And I knew that he would be aware of Triumph because in 2016, I did an entire remote for Hulu where I chased Ted Cruz. Remember, he had that bus, the Cruiser, yeah. the Cruise Express, the whatever <laughs> called it. And, uh, and I would just go from town to town chasing him and getting in his sight line. Mm -hmm. And again, I would not yell, I would not disrupt the event, but I would be there and I would make little side comments to people who were yeah. next to me. <laughs> and I would yell at him when he was walking through and leaving, Ted, Ted, one more question, you know, but it was enough for them to be very upset. So my uh, talent booker, yeah. Julie uh, calls me and says, the cruise people have called. They want to know what it's going to take for you to stop showing up at every event. They want to talk to Ted or what, what you know, I'm saying, negotiate. So they, they're willing to talk to me or something. She said, perhaps. And, and I said, you know what? I like the way this is working. <laughs> <laughs> so Ted Cruz, uh, he thinks he's funny. And apparently he thought that he could hold his own and, and all would be fine, you know? So he had a very, very big, grandiose kind of gesture of like welcoming triumph. Please, please, you know, bringing his arm to his chest. Come along, come along. And then the rest is like, we, we put almost all of it on Colbert, you know, the exchange. Yeah, you know, it was such can, a great, the whole yourself. thing was so great. He's yeah. gotta, yeah. And it was very, very stressful for me because couple of things because I had no, again, I had no expectation that I was going to get to talk to Ted Cruz. I didn't even have like, we, we write a lot of jokes in advance, but yeah. I never wrote, like I never put together a section of like, what, what would I say if, yeah. to Ted Cruz? And also not only that, but I don't want to say anything that's going to be too gross or dark or anything that he could use as ammo to mm -hmm. like talk about, because this was like right after the Kavanaugh hearings. After the Kavanaugh hearings and, you know, there was that moment where the, uh, the activists confronted, I think it was Jeff Flake in an elevator. Mm -hmm, there were, mm -hmm. there were, and, and, and there were a lot of protests and they had come, they had come up with this new phrase. The mob is what they labeled. The mob is you know, coming for them. The pe people who are against rape, basically. <laughs> the mob! <laughs> so... People who want to see at least a fair exploration of whether this guy did what. Yeah, before he gets a lifetime appointment. Yeah, before he gets a lifetime appointment, which was not to be, obviously, the uh, the investigation that they had hoped for. But the mob was what they were, you know, labeled. So I mm -hmm. didn't want to do anything to feed that narrative. So so I was eliminating some of the crasser jokes. 
for that reason. Like, for example, there was a joke about when Trump hugged you at the at the rally when you were together. Was he technically grabbing another pussy? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. So I, I had a few that that were mild enough, but still funny enough. Mm-hmm. I only did a couple. And then then he kind of gave me a softball. And he thought he had this big checkmate smile on his face. <laughs> and everybody around him who was frowning, that was the that was the second thing that was terrifying about the the moment was that, you know, usually when I do a triumph remote, even if I go to a Republican convention, there are plenty of people who are triumph fans who are willing yeah. to laugh. Lots of Republican delegates have senses of humor about it and uh, and are willing to laugh. It'll be interesting to see if that maintains this year because there's a different level of like digging in with Trump supporters at this stage, I would say. And a yeah. defensiveness, and a defensiveness that may make things more contentious. But generally, and Ted Cruz is not unlike those guys—Republican guys who have a, a sense of humor about it—and women. And um, but everybody around Ted Cruz, it's their job to win his trust by protecting him. So mm-hmm. the last thing any of them are going to do is give me even a smile. They're just giving me just uh, just a circle of stink eye. You know, so I'm not getting any laughs. I'm just hoping that Colbert's audience is going to yeah. find this funny. <laughs> I'm getting nothing. And then finally, he thinks he's got me. And then he makes this joke, like, remember, it was the Democrats who took you to the veterinarian to get neutered. I don't even know exactly what it meant, but it yeah. got a huge laugh among everybody around yeah. him. His people loved it. And he's just like, got a big smile. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shoulders are starting to vibrate and he's nodding and like, you know, checkmate. But it turned out it was actually a softball. And and I just said, yes, no, I'm with you. I am totally against, I'm, I'm, I, I, no, I totally support uh, spaying and neutering, especially, uh, especially the way Trump neutered you. Yeah. Some people did laugh because they had to, and, and he laughed. He actually went, da! Yeah. Like, you got me. Yeah. Which I gave kind him of credit a nice moment. for. Him. Yeah. You know, let's be civil here, okay? Because this man, nobody should be yelling at this man in a public place. I mean, doesn't a man have the right to sit down in a restaurant and enjoy a meal that five waiters have spit in? <laughs> well, I, w- I will say to Triumph two things. One, a, a, as a Cuban-American, anyone smoking a cigar can't be all bad. That's right. <laughs> and two, I just want to say to Triumph, my advice is walk away. Walk away. And, ju- and just remember, it wasn't the Republicans, it was the Democrats that took you into the vet to get fixed. Oh. And, and there is freedom on the other I side. I support, hey, I support Spain, I support Spain and neutering, just like Trump did to you. Uh. Right, All right. No, I gave him credit for like, uh, for that. And he, uh, and then I haven't ever said this and I'm going to regret it, but he, he actually, so then as a joke, Triumph, uh, I high-fived him with my paw. Because I thought it would look funny. And then I was like, no, I'm not going to use that in the remote. because <laughs> Too generous. <laughs> Too generous. It'll look like, you know, that'll be the freeze frame that other yeah. that, they, that they pull. You know, You're, you weren't going to give them that. I, it's just all about like, we live in this internet world where everything, you know, one moment can be pulled out of context and redefine anything. And I was like, you know, on the one hand, I liked that he was a good sport about it, but I think that's going to come off anyway. I think it yeah. came across anyway. I don't you need You to, didn't need the high five. I didn't need a bunch of jerks using this against uh, somehow. But you you kind of, you went at Beto too. And when you ended up meeting with him, you know, you didn't, you didn't give him a pass either. No, I mean, 
I, I think I, you know, in fairness was rougher on Ted Cruz, but Ted yeah. Cruz is like yeah. a lightning rod. Makes He's sense. one of the most hated people in the Senate. I think a lot of Republicans hate him too. Mm. <laughs> But uh, but they deal with him, and but he's much more controversial. I mean, even for a Republican, than Beto's like a newcomer. I, I had a couple of harsh jokes about Democrats voting twice, that kind of thing. For as a Democrat, is it more important than ever this year to vote twice? It's like that kind of thing. <laughs> do you have any plans to do anything this year? Because we don't even really know what I think it's real possible, life campaigning will will be yet. That's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, I wouldn't go out tomorrow. That's yeah. for sure. You know, I'm getting up there and my wife, there's no way my wife would let me. Yeah. It's like, it's not even a discussion. She's not going to let me go. She would never let me go to a Trump rally right now. Yeah. What not about the convention? Years. The convention's a couple of months away and I think it's possible. Coming up, Robert looks back at his long tenure at SNL and reveals that his eventual exit was, quote, not pretty. 
and he liked the idea. And really, the only joke I had was the joke was going to be on the puppet, that his repertoire was so limited because he was a dog and all he could do was compliment somebody and then say, for me to poop on, <laughs> just the switcheroo. Yeah. That was basically the idea. And that then was we the whole did bit. Like, that was basically the whole bit. The joke was on the dog and the audience loved it. And, you know, I mean, I think I had one joke about, you know, Siskel and Ebert, I would still hump Siskel's leg. I don't even remember. <laughs> Some leg humping joke. And it did so well that we brought it back. And then I quickly realized that it actually worked perfectly in that spot in the show, which is it's not at the top of the show, but it was after Conan interviews his first guest. That's when mm -hmm. I made fun of Siskel and Ebert in that first one. And, and I realized that Conan, who's always been a very polite person by nature, his comedy always comes out of a lot of goofiness and you know, mm. we would do satirical stuff, but it was always in the most silly, indirect way when yeah. we started that show. And Conan's politeness made him very likable. But at the same time, when he would have somebody on like John Tesh or David Hasselhoff or William Shatner for two acts, it would actually provide some catharsis for the audience to have this cute little dog puppet take a big shit on that person <laughs> in a way that Conan would never do. Yeah. And Conan could always feign. <laughs> and Conan was always really funny as like, I don't know how he got yeah. in here. Like that kind of attitude. There is something about the puppet and Triumph that you, you know, get away with things that, that other people couldn't, right? Or that Absolutely. I mean, there's a level 100%. I mean, for one thing, it's just inherently meaner for a human mm -hmm. being to make fun of Star Wars fans than yeah. for an adorable fictional puppet. Plus, there's an extra layer of irony because Triumph's got a bow tie and a cigar mm -hmm. and his rhythm is very Catskills old school. Even though we try to write really funny jokes, the, the fact that Triumph adheres to this dinosaur kind of conceit sort of lowers his status even more, mm -hmm. you know, so it becomes kind of like the jester and the kind of thing where, you know, you can make jokes in front of the king and the king's not going to be offended. And a lot of times it works that way. And other times we still piss people off. Yeah. But um, like a good example. So the, the Star Wars fans, a friend of mine suggested I do that. He was he had an office outside the Ziegfeld Theater and he told me about the line. I proposed it and they told me, oh, we pitched that. We actually thought of doing that for Conan. And then they said, we'll talk to Conan about it. And Conan inherently understood exactly what I just articulated, that it would come off way funnier and less mean to have mm -hmm. the puppet doing it than for Conan to be out there making fun of the nerds. Yeah. And yeah, so he had the right instinct. So he, he gave up that one and said, yeah, no, send Triumph. And of course, that's the one I hear about more than any to this day and always will probably. And that's fine. Yeah. I don't need to top it. <laughs> it's premiere night here for Attack of the Clones, but outside the Ziegfeld Theater is the real show, Return of the Dorks. Thousands of 35-year-old men waiting days, even months, for just a taste of George Lucas's table scraps. Lonely men who have never had sex, not even with a Catholic priest. Are there people that you think about when you look back that have handled it uh, particularly bad, reacted particularly poorly? There were events that were much harder than others. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last impeachment trial was very hard. Yeah. When I did for Colbert in January, nobody wanted to talk to me. Everybody was very, very tense. And I can't believe I got, I mean, I would say things to Lindsey Graham as he would walk by. 
mm-hmm. but he would just ignore them. Yeah. And then finally, we did a thing at the end where I held up a sign right behind Lindsey Graham saying, Triumph holds up the sign saying, we'll, we'll lie for rubles. <laughs> and uh, fairly aggressive politically for Triumph to do, but it just seemed so funny if we could get away with it. They ignore the reporters too, so you don't have to feel too bad that they were ignoring you. Well, no, this was when he was in a scrum that he stopped for and was answering questions yeah. and they were all there and they all saw it. Yeah, you were in the scrum, but you didn't get any uh, questions in. No, could never get a question in. We we did get to have that sign and it's a great meme if you go to my, yeah. <laughs> if you go to Triumph's uh, Twitter site, yeah, it's there. So there's that one. And then the Michael Jackson trial was a very, very difficult experience because people from all over the world had descended upon Santa Maria, California. People had come from all over the world who refused to believe that. Yeah, mostly his fans. I mean, right? They're they're the ones who are out there. Oh, yeah. No, these are all his dedicated fans. And they're all, again, they're all dressed in crazy outfits, which Mm -hmm. made it even funnier. And they were so mad and they were very shrewd and organized. They would shame people for talking to me. A guy from Scotland would be like, you know, can't you see? He's going to take the piss out of you. <laughs> you know, there was one French lady who was dressed as like a Harlequin, like just a really puffy Harlequin out- outfit. And she's like, no, no, no. I do not talk. I will not talk to you. And I was like, yeah, I understand. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't want to compromise your dignity. <laughs> and then, but they would curse. They got very clever and organized. And like when I would get somebody to agree to talk to me, they would start chanting, fuck, 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 oh, so to ruin the audio. Wow. To ruin the audio. So we had to come back a second day and wear them down. And we brought like lemonade and suntan lotion. And they were getting tired of us and used to us. And we got just enough jokes to, to get to it do done. something with it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. We No, it's a great remote. It's mm-hmm. really funny. But it took a lot more time. Yeah. And thankfully, the Conan people are very supportive and understanding when that kind of thing happens. Yeah. Happened a few times where it's like, we need another day. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Michael Jackson, what's the story behind the the Michael Jackson TV Funhouse. Uh, oh, wasn't wow. that a whole thing? One of them was, it's all about the timing. When I did SNL cartoons, I did them. I had three ideas. I had the ambiguously gay duo, which I had done at the Dana Carvey show. Right. And then I had fun with real audio over the summer. Those are my, always my favorite. Yeah. And that got me really excited. And then I had the ex-presidents mm-hmm. that came out over the summer. And then my last idea, okay, four. And then my fourth thing was I'd like to do cartoons about public figures and make them like a Hanna-Barbera character. So we did this thing with Michael Jackson where the joke was that he was like Yogi Bear, basically. And Uh it was just a very playful theme song. And he's basically swiping little boys like they're picnic baskets. (laughs) And the first time we did it, we didn't hear a peep from anybody because this was, I think, 1996. And I believe he had had a trial recently that was settled out of court. He had had a lawsuit. So there was motivation to do Mm -hmm. it. And then later in 2005, when the Michael Jackson trial hit and I was doing the triumph thing, I also did a cartoon about it on Saturday Night Live. And again, no problem because it was in the news. But there was one other cartoon I did in the year 2000 or something where I was just like, I don't know, I got nothing. Let me do another Michael Jackson. (laughs) I had some funny sight gag ideas Mm -hmm. like where he would... Where he builds a builds a catapult and like and he sits on a catapult and it's gonna spring him over the roof or over this big wall and into a 
into some sort of children's school or something. <laughs> uh, and so we do it and gets a lot of laughs, but they threaten to sue. We heard from Michael Jackson's lawyers, mm -hmm. NBC did. This is libelous because, you know, there's nothing in the news that's indicating any of this. No reason to suggest that Michael Jackson yeah. might have done something uh, yes. untoward. Right, yes, because all there was was the rumors and settling out of court mm -hmm. years ago. So they threatened to sue and NBC yanked it from the reruns and it's never been seen. Since then. Wow. That you could have you could have brought it back after uh leaving Neverland. Yeah. That would have been a right. good reason to bring it back. <laughs> Do you feel like I feel Literally like really beating a dead horse? Yeah. yeah. I feel like the the TV funhouse stuff, it's sort of similar to the way you get away with Boris Triumph than you would as yourself. It's like you were able to get away with so much more in the cartoons than they do in the sketches, don't you think? I mean, they were they were Without really a doubt, some hard of the, hitting satire. Some of the physical stuff as well. Obviously, you know, things in Ace and Gary. Yeah. That uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to get away with with two humans. Not then anyway. Yeah. And I do uh, wonder about ambiguously gay duo, whether now? that would whether that would fly oh. now. Well, I wouldn't write it now because it's not about thankfully people are have let go to be clear the operative engine of that joke was our obsession with sexuality yeah. to me the stars of that bit when i wrote it were always the villains you know ace and gary i did a lot of physical jokes that were kind of a play on the uh, you know that whole era from the 80s and it going into the batman superhero movies where just the inherent contradiction of Stallone and Schwarzenegger, like hyper-masculine action movies, mm -hmm. but the bodies are sweating and there's all this homoerotic imagery underneath the surface that I always found amusing. And uh, But the real joke was just the premise that I came up with was, was all about the villains are obsessed with finding out whether these guys are gay or not and they can't get their evil work done because they're too <laughs> obsessed. They're so distracted. Staring at these guys, yeah. Yeah, and and the reason it, I thought it was so funny was because it's it's not just homophobes who were obsessed. This was just sport and titillation that was accepted and considered non-controversial in any way. I always found that it was kind of hilarious to me that these people who were supposedly progressive gave a shit at all. Mm -hmm. Like, and yeah. that was the that was really the bottom line point of the cartoon was yeah. who gives a shit, you know, <laughs> of, of whether how they fuck. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's sad that this has to be something that people get defined by. They have to at this point because they're still fighting for basic human rights, you know, still to this day. Thankfully, there's been, you know, an incredible amount of progress, but it's not done. This is all kind of stuff that needs to be in the rearview mirror, but it's not there yet. But it's a lot better than it was 20 years ago, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, there'd be really no reason to, to write the ambiguously gay duo. Yeah. You were, you were working on a movie for a while, right? Or you were developing a, I did. a movie? I wrote a movie with Colbert in the year 2005. It was for Jim Carrey. Oh, wow. And yeah. Was Who, he was going to play the, the villain or he was going to... He was going to play Ace. Colbert and I, because Colbert, of all the people who would help me write, different people helped me write different cartoons. Colbert was my main guy who helped me with Ace and Gary. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he had a great ear, especially for those kind of double entendre lines mm -hmm. that, that Ace and Gary would say. Just a great ear for it. Yeah, and I feel like um, a lot of people still don't know that it was him and, and Steve Carell doing the voices all that time that's right. on SNL. That's right, because they were the, it was the first thing they did for the Dana Carvey show when like Steve had just gotten, Colbert had just gotten off a 
plane and went straight to a recording studio <laughs> yep. and I made him ace and Colbert, the, the sidekick, Gary. Yeah. So Jim Carrey uh, met with us. We wrote a script and then we waited literally a year for an answer. And we got back that uh, his managers were split. One of them was like, this is great. And the other one was like, you're never going to be Tom Hanks if you do this. You're, yeah. you're, you're 40 years old. And so he didn't do it. And then uh, a couple of years later, he did Dumb and Dumberer. Yeah. <laughs> you were at SNL for such a long time. Um, why did you end up leaving? What was the sort of catalyst to, to move on I was on asked to leave, finally. Yeah. I, was, I, I mean, listen, I got to write there for eight years. Then I took a few years off doing other things, uh, writing movies, and then the, the Dana Carvey show. And then I went back when I had the cartoon idea. I got to do the cartoons for 11 years there. So now we're into like 2008 by now. Mm -hmm. And I had started there in 1985. It's wild. And, you know, so as eight years and then two off and then 11 years with cartoons. And it was it was not pretty the way it ended. I really? got to be honest. Yeah, because um, and I talked about it in the SNL book and it wasn't Lauren at all. I really he was very gracious. They took advantage of first of all, they had it was an era where the show was not. I thought it had an amazing cast at the time, actually, one of their maybe their best cast ever. But I don't think the network it really wasn't until Sarah Palin that the mm -hmm. show took off to a, the next level. Yeah. And really well, hasn't been I, the same since, I think. Well, it's been but it's never been it's been more relevant ever since yeah. than it was before that. Not necessarily a bad way. I just mean, it's that changed it, I think, in terms of the celebrity Absolutely. cameos and the. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's subjective. But in terms of its relevance. It's mm -hmm. seeming relevance. It, it took it to another level. The first thing that did was the Lonely Island videos, you know, kind of. Yeah. And that sort of pushed the show in a whole much better direction, I think. But this is like right before that. This is like 2007. In 2007, they fired like four great cast members. They fired Rachel Dratch and Horatio mm -hmm. and, and Parnell and I believe somebody else. And it felt like I barely got by. Like my cartoons had gotten pretty expensive, partly because I was giving the animators raises and also because I was doing them faster than ever because I wanted them to be more topical. Yeah. Partly like I always approached the show, like, what does the show need? You know, even though I had a lot of freedom with the cartoons, like once Will Ferrell left and they didn't have a bush they were totally confident in, I started doing more political pointed cartoons about the administration because I felt the show needed to. I felt like, yeah, we were being a little tame. And so... Yeah, and they never some, quite figured out Obama, I don't think, so... Yeah, they had a lot of... They got a lot of crap for having Armisen do it and then Jay Farrow got to do it, but they didn't like... I don't know, they never got a handle on writing for Obama. Really. Yeah. So then... Um, this is now, you know, those three guys get dumped because the show is not a gigantic, again, it's pre-Sarah Palin. Yeah. And so they're looking to cut budget. And then the next year, the writer's strike hits and everything is stopped for a while. And then I'm told that they're not going to renew you. Every SNL contract has a formal thing in it where at least it used to be all the years I was there, where they had an option to renew you like in December or New Year's right around then mm -hmm. for the second half of the season. And it was always a formality. But this one year, because of the writer's strike, I know that Jeff Zucker in particular and the NBC in general were looking to get rid of a lot of fat in their minds. Yeah. They kind of took advantage of the writer's strike. Yes. And trimmed a lot of fat in what they considered fat. And so I was, um, I was told I wasn't going to be renewed. And Lauren didn't you know he didn't have enough power he didn't have enough juice to 
to fight for it. And I really, you know, it really bothered me because I, I just didn't think that was appropriate to, uh, to let someone go a been there for some 23 years, yeah. worked very hard, done a lot of good stuff for the show. B, they actually knew that I had a child with autism. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew it by then and the expenses and difficulties that come with that. Yeah. And here they're just basically cutting me off, cutting off an income that I had planned for, for that year. And mm -hmm. um, so, and Lauren went back and fought to get me one cartoon. We, I got to do one cartoon like when we came back in February and that was it. And then I was gone. You know, fortunately... I had written the Zohan movie mm -hmm. and the Zohan movie came out in 2008 and it made a lot of money. And, and then I just sort of sh shifted into movies and started writing more movies, uh, mostly with Adam, but, but other movies too. Not, not that they got made, but I made some good deals and, and I yeah. was able to make a living doing that. But yeah, that happened. And then within the same year, Conan moved to Los Angeles. So the two gigs that I had basically counted on as, as my foundation uh, financially and creatively were gone because I yeah, had made tough. an overall deal. Yeah, I made an overall deal with Conan people to do the clutch cargos and to do triumphs and was making a decent salary. So yeah, it was tough. And then, <laughs> and then it was just so funny because then I'm, I'm gone and the first show Fall 2008, cold opening is Tina Fey as Sarah Palin. And the show that I'd always dreamed of being a part of, even though I love the show, yeah. but I always wanted that for Lauren. I always wanted that for Lauren and for myself too, to be a part of the show when everybody's talking about it. Because right. I grew up on the show and, and I had an amazing time doing the show, but it was never like it was in the 70s. And it was close. There were some moments where we did some great things. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dana's George Bush and Ross Perot. We got up there, but it wasn't like that. It was almost like I'd stepped away from 30 Rock and fireworks went off. It was almost like a bad joke on me. But that's okay. I was very happy for Lauren, really happy for him because yeah. he never he never talked as if the show wasn't in the center of everyone's conversation. Well, but, in but a way, now, it always was, but now then it really was. Yeah, but then it really, really was. Do you still watch the show? I watch the show a fair amount. I don't watch it a lot. Uh, I'm an old man, and I I have uh, two sons at home, and the older boy and. I'm, it's hard to stay up. Yeah. It's hard to be up at 1130 on a Saturday night. So I try to catch more often than not. I try to catch yeah, the, the next sketches or, yeah. yeah, on YouTube the next day or on Monday when the kids are in school. I try mm -hmm. to catch, uh, I, I do follow the show and try to yeah. catch as much of it as I can. I mean, your, your satire, as I said, has always been really hard hitting. What do you make of the way that the, the show has handled Trump? <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, been up and down. It's, yeah. it's a hard one. I think it's been hard for everybody in a way because he's such a sitting duck. Something I mentioned in a tweet a few weeks ago was um, I feel like even during this, this terrible time, everything was focused on Trump. And, and like when the riots started, like for weeks, I felt like all the late night shows were still just making mm. it all about Trump. This problem has existed long before Donald Trump. And I'm not giving Trump any kind of free pass yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. But my problem was that I know he's easy to make fun of. I know why he's easy to make fun of. I do it as much as anybody when I'm doing Triumph. But if you've got a platform and all you're going to make fun of is Donald Trump, then you're giving cover to mm -hmm. a lot of people and a you're, you're providing cover for a, a lot of corruption yeah. that's rampant that's and racism that's existed 
way before Donald Trump. And I'm not saying that, that he doesn't foment it at times and that he's not a part of it, but it goes way beyond him. And to just make it all about Trump is you're, you're doing a disservice. You know, it needs to be out there. It's mm-hmm. not as easy, not as easy to make fun of, um, you know, lobbyists or, uh, you know, the police, uh, the, you know, the system of uh, protection that's inherent in, you know, in our uh, police force. But it's got to be done, you know, yeah. and, and absolutely with with jokes. Well, however, SNL does come back in the fall, whether it's still from home or, or live or what. It'll be interesting to see how they handle this. And especially because Alec Baldwin, I think, threatens every time that it's his last time and that he's done. And he's, you know, <laughs> you and usually it's pretty. Yeah, it, it's almost like uh, Groundhog Day. You know, if Alec, yeah. uh, if Alec says he's not coming back, that means uh, six weeks till. <laughs> Yeah, till he comes back. Six weeks till he comes back. If he, <laughs> he says he is coming back, then it's two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> before we wrap up, I want to yeah. run down just a, a few other things that we didn't get to talk about as sort of a, a speed sure. round. We didn't mention uh, your probably most famous on-screen role at SNL, which is the Bears. Oh, <laughs> um, what what do you what do you remember about the first time that you actually did that? Um, you know, on on screen, and was that it was well, kind of different for you to to. Yeah, I mean, I'd done little things on screen before, but I um, I wrote it with Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, it just they, it was just three guys uh, in their backyard uh, drinking beers and having conversations that always ended in dub bears. It was a similar thing to Triumph, where the yeah. joke was how <laughs> how one dimensional one yeah. <laughs> how one dimensional they were. And then Bob suggested that we copy this show called the the Sports Writers on Television. Mm-hmm. It was a very popular Chicago show where three sports writers would you know, argue about sports, these guys would be the guys. And then immediately, right, they can predict the games and mm-hmm. argue whether it's going to be Bears 62 to three or Nana yeah. 65 to seven, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Get yeah. into heat, heated conversations about how badly the Bears were going to beat the other team. And so that made it more accessible. That, that little adjustment mm-hmm. made it something that everyone could understand and, and less indulgent. And so we did it with Joe Mantegna and I wasn't supposed to be in it. I wrote it. I had I, some, I think somebody like Phil Hartman was in it, and um, but Jim Downey was the head writer and producer, and he's from Joliet, yeah. and he had heard me do it, and he felt even though I was from New York, he thought that I had a better accent than than Phil Hartman. No, well, for Hartman for sure, but 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 even George Went and or yeah. Joe Montana, even Joe Montana and Mike Myers is from Canada and. Yeah. Farley was from uh, Wisconsin and he was kind of doing Dan Aykroyd's Irwin Mainway character for those yeah. really real SNL nerds out there. So Downey asked Lauren if he could put me in it because, and he described it as like, I'll be like a metronome for the sketch because yeah. Chicagoans hear one really good Chicago accent. Then it gives, It'll it makes in. everybody else's, everybody else's accent is okay. Then they're all doing variations of, of the metronome. Mm-hmm. you know and then it's all right and and it made a lot of sense and so uh so yeah i got to do it and then george went happened to host at the very end of the year and so bob and i wrote another one and by now it had become a big phenomenon in chicago yeah. because the bulls were coincidentally about to win their first championship honestly i had more fun doing stuff in chicago with those characters than even doing them on the show because we we got to literally stand in the center of soldier field before a playoff game Mm -hmm. and give a pep talk in character it was the dumbest thing (laughs) 
they could have asked us to do, but they did. The characters yeah. were that popular. And then we did a kicking, a field goal kicking competition at halftime. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we, uh, where Farley fell flat on his face with a beer in his hand. And, <laughs> and then I had to follow him. And I, to- I the only way I can top this is making the field goal. Yeah. That, in my mind, that's all I could do. So I'm holding a beer in my hand and I just try really hard. And I, <laughs> I, I cleared the, the goalpost. It was yeah. like a 20 yarder, but still I was like, I got a big cheer. It was quite a thrill. And then like, then the Bulls won the championship. And the next year we got to go on stage at Grand Park in front of like hundreds of thousands of Bulls fans and perform before the Bulls came out to <laughs> make their speeches. Wow. And we did this like three championships in a row. That's we would insane. sing a song. I would write a song and George and I would do it until one year. And this is interesting because of the last dance. Now everybody knows the intrigue that I knew about back then because I was very into the Bulls. But like Jerry Reinsdorf, even the year before the last Michael year, uh, 1996, or even in 1996, the first year where Rodman was there, Mm -hmm. even that year there was controversy. Will he have the players back? He doesn't want to renew Pippen's contract. What's he going to do? And the fans were furious. So George and I, like we produced a church basket, a donation Mm -hmm. basket, and like (laughs) threw it into the crowd and said, Everybody puts in, everyone put in $20. Yeah, it'll cover Michael's first month. You know, help the Jerry's out, help, help Jerry out. He's too cheap. And we were never asked back. <laughs> that was it. We were never asked back. And then right after the last dance aired, I put this thing that had, I, I couldn't find it online. So I put it online of the super fans. So now we're at the 2000 ESPYs and mm-hmm. the Bulls are being presented with athletes of the decade or his team of the decade. And Phil Jackson is no longer part of the team. He doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Michael Jordan, uh, Scotty Pippen's not with the team anymore. He doesn't want to be there. Michael Jordan is there to accept athlete of the decade, mm-hmm. but he refuses to re- accept team of the decade <laughs> without Phil Jackson and Scotty and his teammates. So they chose us. <laughs> to, to accept they it? They chose me and George to accept it. And... We wrote the most scathing acceptance speech, shitting on Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf. It almost felt like a, a, an epilogue to The Last Dance. Yeah. It's very satisfying to watch it. Damos! Damos! Never in doubt. Never no in question. Doubt. Unfortunately, the Bulls could not be there tonight because Reinsdorf and Krause broke the damn team up. Broke them up. Apparently, the team of the decade wasn't worth paying for. Six titles was plenty. I mean, who needs to watch Michael and Scotty win a few more titles when you can watch two fat white guys rebuild? Go, Jerry, go! Get under that salary cap, Jerry! Yeah! We briefly touched on the Dana Carvey show, but I wanted to, to talk about that because it's just such an incredible thing. And the people, I think, <laughs> you know, people either, maybe more people know after that documentary came out. Oh uh, my too God, funny to yeah. Fail, with that it was you and Colbert and Carell and Dana Carvey yes. and Louis C.K. and yes. Charlie Kaufman. Who yep. am I missing? Anybody? Um, uh, John Glazer, who's yeah, a genius. John Glazer. One of the funniest um, people I know. And, and that, uh, it, that it only lasted You know Stamatopoulos. For, oh yeah, yeah. You know, the writer who created mm. Moral Oral and he mm. was one of the 
foundation writers of Conan. That it, it was but, just yeah. this incredible crew of people. And then, of course, the show only lasted uh, eight. Seven, seven or eight, depending oh, seven, on how you yeah. look at exactly. it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I have a number so, of those under my belt, yeah. but that's the most famous now because of the because uh, yeah. of that documentary. Yeah. yeah. What kind of what kind of stands out uh, for you from that from that whole experience? I don't have happy memories of that time. Yeah, it was a very very like Conan. For some reason, the first year it's a li- it was a little like the first year of Conan, which was very you know we were in danger of being canceled constantly. Mm-hmm. Like we were getting thirteen week renewals, and that's it, literally for the first year. But I have wonderful memories of that one because yeah. somehow we were, even though we were, you know, hated by the network on some level and in danger, we were kind of left alone creatively. And we felt like this new group of people who were all connecting. Like I had just hired Louie and Dino and Andy Richter, and we were all on the same wavelength with me and Conan. And, um, and it was the most exciting gig ever to create that show uh, out of nowhere. And um and try to make it original and funny. And, and and we did so many crazy bits that a number of them fell flat in a hilarious way, but many of them, you know, he did for years and years, even from the first week. And it was just such a satisfying thing. Whereas the Dana Carvey show, we had network involvement creatively all the time. And we made an incredibly bad decision on the very first show. Like the first Conan show was actually a big success. Yeah, It was only after that, that once the excitement wore off, that people said, oh, he seems nervous and the comedy's yeah. too You crazy. had a great first cold open on Conan. Absolutely. Conan and I wrote that together. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever been a part of. He just said, what if I'm just walking down the street with no idea? Because he was aware <laughs> of the pressure. I just got a yeah. goofy smile on my face. And then I said, yeah. And how about let's have everybody who comes up to you say, a lot of pressure, Mr. O'Brien. Hope yeah. you're as good as Letterman. <laughs> you know, just really cheerfully. And he says, I'll, yeah. I'll do my best. Yeah. I think that this that was great because it was so simple. But then maybe the uh, Bill Clinton uh, breast. No, that was like was, an incredibly uh... crazy swing of the bat. I mean, yeah. Conan's situation was so insane that it was fun and easy to write mm-hmm. a self-deprecating thing about it. But what we did with Bill Clinton we had a very simple premise where he's talking about his opponents and he keeps giggling because he can't help. He knows he's going to beat all of them. Yeah. And then Louis suggested, yeah. what if we have this other thing where he's gotten rid of Hillary because Hillary was very unpopular at the time. Mm-hmm. And he says, I have to be both the mother and the father to my country. And, you know, and then the breastfeeding idea. And then I made it worse by with my animal obsession. <laughs> oh, what, what if he has, forget breastfeeding. Why doesn't he have eight breasts? And, and then he can feed live puppies and kittens. You know, this is, yeah. I just love using live animals. And I'm literally the guy in the sketch who's handing him the live puppies and kittens. It's almost like you know a metaphor because i was the producer of the show and i'm just Mm -hmm. handing him bad reviews (laughs) (laughs) here's another little isn't this bad review adorable look it's only this bad review is only two months old and you know i was an idiot i didn't know that we were following home improvement i didn't know what home improvement was yeah i didn't understand that home improvement was a wholesome show that children watched with their parents and that's why it was number one i thought pamela anderson's on it and tim allen dealt coke yeah <laughs> there's gotta that's be what, that was your in your imagination that's what home improvement was yeah i don't <laughs> not exactly but it was on at nine it wasn't on in the family hour i yeah. just didn't think and you know just bad producing i should have watched it once i watched yeah. it like four weeks in and i was literally just shell-shocked I wanted to to just touch on Night of Too Many Stars because I know oh, you know you, you you mentioned um, your son who has autism mm-hmm. and that's been a big um, 
you know, part of yeah. your career now is this benefit yes. um, and, you know, supporting that cause. So when you look yes. back at, you've done a bunch of them now, um, are there any, you know, particularly special moments that, that stick out to you? Oh yeah. thousand percent. I mean, there are comedy moments that stick out like Chris Rock. Uh, we had this breakthrough idea about three years in three shows in where we started auctioning off incredibly silly celebrity stunts. And Chris Rock suggested, what if I chew out the X of uh, the highest bidder? You know, mm-hmm. I'll call them on the phone and I'll <laughs> chew them out. And he did. And the guy picked up, he had dropped this girl on Facebook, like somehow it was just really fucked up. And he calls up the guy and just, I don't remember exactly what he said. It's still online somewhere. Chris Rock will chew out your ex. <laughs> and Chris told me it was the biggest laugh he'd ever gotten in his career. Wow. Chris Rock telling me that. <laughs> I know. I know. But that's like, that was a real exciting thing because then that sort of turned a corner for the show where we, every year we started doing really absurd remotes. Al Pacino will be posed for, with your family in their Christmas card. Mm-hmm. Like these kind of Seth Rogen take a pee with Seth Rogen. And they literally <laughs> went to the men's room, like three bidders. Yeah. And they all took a piss with Seth Rogen. That's hilarious. Uh, as the camera followed them. And, um, you know, but then there's this other moment where Katy Perry, uh, it's going to sound corny, but it wasn't. It, uh, I mean, it was. Oh, yeah, I remember this. We had this girl, yeah. Jody Di Piazza, who was 12 years old, uh, this this girl, and they wrote, they made a beautiful film about her progress and how, you know, she couldn't connect through anything but music and they found a way to get to her that way. And she turned out to be a prodigy and, you know, she's still not, you know, what I'd call the highest functioning. Uh, she wasn't at the time. She still had a lot of issues mm-hmm. with autism, but, but she was a great musician and she uh, loved Katy Perry. I, I loved a lot of musicians. I had the idea of having her do firework with Katy Perry. And it was just, I was obsessed with making this happen. Mm-hmm. So we, we contacted Katy Perry's management and they passed. They said, she's busy, whatever. So then I had Jody play it on her own and record it. And I sent it to them. And then I also had Sarah Silverman who had not met Katy Perry, but I had remembered hearing Sarah Silverman's a good friend of mine. And I'd remembered yeah seeing Katy Perry at like an MTV red carpet, they asked her, who do you admire? And she said, Sarah Silverman. I remember that just stuck with me. So I called Sarah and I said, would you contact her and tell her about this? And so she DM'd Katy Perry (laughs) and then invited her to a party. And then she got Katy Perry to agree to do this. And it's just an amazing, it just took everybody. We had never had a moment like that before. And the greatest part about it was even before Katy Perry came out, which was amazing in itself. But Jody was um, just playing the beginning of the song and we were transitioning from the video of her playing to her playing live and the audience goes crazy. and, And there's this one moment where she's singing the song and she gets, there's another spontaneous applause I'm not sure exactly what caused it, but it happened. And you just see a big smile on her face as she's singing. And it was so important because even when Daniel, my son, was diagnosed, I was reading all these books and hearing from therapists. And they would say things like, these kids lack what they called theory of mind. And Mm -hmm. what it meant was, is they had no ability to be empathetic. They couldn't connect emotionally the way, you know, typical people can connect. And I just it's bullshit. I learned over the years that it's bullshit. And, yeah. and it's so important that people know that. Mm-hmm. And this moment that Jody had really showed it. So yeah, that's that moment, you know, that's to me the most 
important, special. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Special thing I've ever been a part of. You know, yeah. you know, you know even more than making fun of nerds at Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> we end every episode by asking, "Who is a, a comedian who has made you laugh the hardest in your life?" Um, wow, you know, it's such a beautiful memory to think about the first time you laughed really hard. Yeah, at anything. You know, and for me, I have a couple and I was able to tell Mel Brooks that there was one moment in Blazing Saddles, the choir is singing it uh, in the church and, and it's just a very corny song that's narrating the plot up to that point. Mm-hmm. But then the very last line, you finally, are, it, it's gotten, it slows down and it becomes a little melancholy and the last verse, and you just don't see it coming, especially if you're 14. Uh, you know, da 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 da. Our town is turning into shit. <laughs> and it was such a shock at that moment. And I just remember the theater I was in and how hard I couldn't stop laughing for like literally five minutes. <laughs> you know, couldn't focus on this on the movie, just yeah. laughing so hard. And I'm so happy I got to tell Mel Brooks. The other one that's like that was when Andy Kaufman appeared on Saturday Night Live and he played he played the foreign man, which you know evolved into Latka. But the original yeah. foreign man character was just a bad comedian who thought he could imitate Archie Bunker and yeah and now I'm going to imitate Archie the Archie Bunker and you stupid you <laughs> stupid everybody's stupid and you know he would get applause and say thank you very much and then he would try another one and uh and then he would start realizing I'm not sure if you're laughing with me or laughing to me I don't know and then he starts literally crying yeah very convincing just, you don't I mean to, I'm trying to, yeah. <laughs> but you, you man, I'm trying to lose me, but you, I told and then it turned into a yeah. rhythm, and the he bongos. starts playing the bongos. Yeah, yeah. that's such a classic. <laughs> but you, yeah. it's still the funniest thing. Yeah, that it's is so just, funny. It's crazy. It's so pure. It's so pure. It's, you know, and it just spoke to spoke to the 10 year old in me. You know, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I love about, you know, the silliest stuff I got to do after Saturday Night Live when I was, you know, starting Conan. One of the things that made me gave me such joy was that I was sort of set free from the sketch parameters and we could just write the stupidest, purest stuff Mm -hmm. that, you know, spoke to me speaks to the child in me. I, I like even Triumph's voice was something that I did for dogs when I was 10 years old. It wasn't. Yeah. So, yeah. So that Andy Kaufman bit is that's, that's gotta be the, the one. Awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for taking so much time. This was fantastic. <laughs> I, okay, cool. I'm such a huge fan of yours for so long. So this was really, really Thank fun you. I really appreciate it. Uh, I had a great time, honestly. Thanks so much. Have a good one. All right, you too. I am immensely grateful to Robert Smigel for giving me so much of his time and so many great stories on today's show. Check out his Quarantine Squares special on Funny or Die and YouTube. And follow at TriumphICDHQ on Twitter, where you can see all of his incredible content. And if you like this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. If you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Red Rock Music. Our theme music is by Claude. You can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.